All right, if you've got a Bible, go ahead and get it out. Uh, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 3 again, verses 7 to 19. While you get yourselves kind of situated and settled there, uh, I just want to say thank you on behalf of our staff. Uh, over the month of October, which is, has been Pastor Appreciation Month, various small groups and individuals have taken uh, time and put the thought and effort into having food uh, in our conference room at various points throughout the month, which has all been delicious. I think our entire pastoral staff is up a few pounds each, um, which I don't know that any of us are like super complaining about because it's been really yummy. But we felt very um, cared for by you all. We're honored to get to serve you. It's a privilege to minister to this body and then for you all to care for and to appreciate us the way you have over this month. Has, um, that's been really special to us. So thank you for that. Um, I wanted to just convey that kind of all in one uh, shot here on a Sunday morning um, and just tell you thank you. So we feel blessed and appreciated and we look forward to continue walking alongside all of you as we pursue Jesus together. So um, I'm going to start us this morning, if you're settled into Hebrews 3 here, by just reading Hebrews 3 verse 7 to 19. Uh, we'll pray and then we'll jump in. It says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me, tried me, and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked to anger with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts, and they have not known my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Watch out, brothers and sisters, so that there won't be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage each other daily while it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. For we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. Uh, as it is said, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for forty years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Let's pray. God, thanks for this morning. Lord, for the chance to come and to be together as a family. God, to get to declare that you are unstoppable, that your glory goes on and on, that it goes on and on in our world. Your glory goes on and on in the universe. Your glory is going to go on and on eternally, God, that there's nothing that could ever stop that. Lord, to join together and to declare that to you is a, is a blessing and a privilege, and to get to do so freely in this country is a blessing. God, I pray that we would see Christ clearly this morning. Lord, that we would see Christ clearly in your word, that we would see that he is better than all things, that believing in him and knowing him and being in relationship with him is better than anything else. God, I pray that as our body interacts with one another, that there would be a, a clear picture of the person of Jesus in our fellowship and in the way we care for and serve and encourage one another. God, I pray that as we sing, uh, we would declare clearly that Jesus is better that he is greater than all things. Lord, I pray that you would be glorified in all that we do this morning. Uh, Lord, would you direct our hearts and our minds and our attention to you, we pray in Jesus' matchless name. Amen. All right. We're going to spend two weeks in this 
same passage in Hebrews uh, for a specific reason. We're going to deal with it in kind of two different ways. This morning, we're going to work with the whole section from verse 7 all the way down to 19. And we have one goal in that. And that is to just wrap our minds around what is the central point of what the Holy Spirit and the author of Hebrews is saying to the church, both the original audience and us, uh, what, what is just the core of that message? So that's what we're going to do this morning. In the middle of this passage, verses 12 to 15 specifically, there are some very practical sort of handles that the church can grab onto. Our natural tendency often uh, when we read scripture is to rush toward what's the practical thing that I can just do, like give me the easy thing that I can grab onto. Uh, in, in this case, and really in all cases, those practical pieces don't actually make sense unless you understand why they're being offered. And so we're going to work with those practicals specifically next week. What does it mean to encourage each other daily? Why are we told to watch out or take heed? We're gonna, we'll work with those next week. This week, we're going to go just big picture. What is the point of this passage? And in order to do that, we need to do a decent amount of contextual work. That's because what's included in here would have made a lot of sense to Hebrew, Jewish, Christian individuals. A couple thousand years later, it makes a little less sense to us because we're not nearly as biblically literate as they were, specifically about the Old Testament. And so we need to, I'm always trying to gauge like how much context and history stuff can we do and like stomach as a congregation on any given Sunday before we just get to the point. This week is probably going to stretch that toward its outer limit. And so in order to do that, I want to set it up by telling you a story. Um, And in order to get into that, I kind of want to set a very specific scene for you. And so I want us to all go to the same spot together. And that is out in the wilderness, uh, in the desert, somewhere in Egypt. You've been in that place wandering around for the bulk of your life, 40 years. Over the course of that time, you've seen pretty much everyone that you know and that you love die. At dusk one night with maybe just like some campfires or some torches going, you see an elderly Israelite man, a grandfather, pull his grandson to him and begin to tell the story of his people. He starts in Egypt. And he says, for 400 years, our people only knew slavery. Six Seven generations of people woke up every day in Egypt and were forced into labor on behalf of the Egyptian kingdom. They were oppressed. They were put into bondage. And then one day, the Lord heard our cries of distress. And he remembered this covenant promise he had made with our people. And he rose to our defense to deliver us from slavery. And he did it in the most miraculous way. The Nile River ran red like blood. There were frogs everywhere for like a week. They were hopping out of Egyptian beds and out of their ovens and they were all over the place. And then at other times there were swarms of gnats or swarms of flies. Livestock were dropping dead out in the fields. There was a hailstorm unlike anything I've ever seen before. It just trampled all the crops everywhere. There were boils on people's skin. The Lord was good to us because it 
times he would distinguish between the people of Egypt and the people of Israel. And the plague would only fall on the Egyptians and we would be spared. And At one point there was this darkness that settled in over Egypt and the Egyptians say it was so dark and so dense that it, like you could feel it. But there was light in the place where we lived. And it all came to a head one night when God sent an angel to walk among all the houses of Egypt. And the firstborn in every house was struck dead by the angel, but not among the Israelite people. We were spared by the blood of a spotless lamb that we rubbed across the doorposts of our homes that told that angel to bypass us. That's the Passover. We remember it every year. And at the end of it, we went streaming out of Egypt. God went before us in this pillar of fire, this pillar of smoke and cloud. As soon as the Egyptians kind of recollected themselves and came back to their senses, Pharaoh sent the army after us and we were chased all the way to the edge of the Red Sea. And it was at that moment where for the very first time I heard among our people this murmuring. I could hear people say things like, was it because there weren't enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out into the wilderness to die, God? And even... Despite that, the Lord was still good to us. That pillar of fire moved around back behind like our our train of people over a million strong. And Moses, our leader, lifted his hands and the Red Sea parted and we went running through that sea with the pillar of fire behind us which cast the Egyptian army into total confusion. And as soon as we got to the other side of the Red Sea, its waters closed back in and the Egyptian army was destroyed. And let me tell you, when we got onto the other side of that sea, there was singing. Oh, we praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord, for He is highly exalted. And we began to walk on. And after a few days, people started to get thirsty. There wasn't enough water. And the Lord brought us like a gift from heaven to this pond, but the water was really bitter. And so the murmuring started again, but God had Moses throw this piece of wood into the pond, and it made the water sweet, and we were satisfied, but then we realized that it had also been a little while since we ate, and people started to grumble again. In fact, the chorus of the murmuring grew a little bit stronger as people started to say, you know, couldn't we have just died in Egypt where we sat around by pots full of meat and ate all the bread that we wanted, but instead you've brought us out to perish in the wilderness? And then God provided food for us. Manna and quail appeared every day. We made it to Mount Sinai and Moses went up on the mountain and he received the law, the Ten Commandments and all the instructions for building the tabernacle and instructions for how it is that we were to relate to God. But while he was up there Some of us who had been murmuring took some gold and had it fashioned into this calf that we worshipped. And a lot of Israelites died that day when the ground opened up and swallowed those who had worshipped something other than Yahweh. We continued on and after a couple of months we arrived at the edge of the promised land at this place called Kadesh. 
And we sent 12 of our best men into the promised land to see if it really was what God said it would be. He'd been promised to our ancestors long ago that we would have a land that would flow with milk and honey. And so we sent 12 men in and they came back a few days later and they were carrying with them grapes that required two people to carry and pomegranates and figs unlike anything we'd ever seen before. And they said, indeed, the land is flowing with milk and honey. And then the strangest thing happened. There was a disagreement among the 12. Ten of them said, yes, the promised land is everything that God said it would be, but the inhabitants are huge. We're like grasshoppers before them. We can't take it. Two of them said, I think we can. God promised it to us, and I believe that he will be faithful. And the chorus of murmuring began to stir again, and it was louder than it had been before, and it encompassed more people than it had before. And as a group, we all decided to side with the ten. And it grieved the Lord. And his anger was set against his people. And Moses pleaded on our behalf for God to relent in his anger. And God said, I will relent. But no one in this generation will enter into the promised land. So over the next 40 years, we just started wandering in the desert. Sometimes we were just miles away from the promised land. 600,000 men came out of Egypt with us that day after the Passover. It was like, there were like a million and a half of us or something. And over the last 40 years, there have been over 100 funerals a day. Every family member I had has passed away. Every friend I knew in Egypt has passed away. I'm one of just a few left. He pulls his grandson kind of over in front of him and he looks him in the eye and he says, just believe. Just believe the word of the Lord. When you wake up tomorrow, keep believing. And the day after that, keep believing because the evidence of your belief today is your belief tomorrow. Shortly after that, the elderly man passes away. There on the bank of the Jordan River, the promised land in sight. One of millions who perished in the wilderness. That's the story of the Exodus. That's the story of God's people being rescued from slavery and then wandering in the desert for 40 years until they made it to the promised land. Every Jewish individual knew that story incredibly well. They didn't need to be reminded of it. They knew all the ins and outs. And so when we arrive in Hebrews chapter 3, we get this quote. It comes from Psalm 95. In Hebrews 3, it starts in verse 7 and it works its way down to 11. Out of Psalm 95, it's actually also verses 7 through 11. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, the writer of Hebrews wants us to examine ourselves by looking into the mirror of the Israelites. This 
quoted passage from Psalm 95 would have forced a Hebrew Christian individual to do that kind of examining. Let me explain why. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip it back to Psalm 95. We're going to spend just a little bit of time there. This psalm was read every year. It was read at a specific time. It was at the very beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles or the Festival of Booths. What happened during that festival is that the Israelite people would leave their homes and they would live in these temporary shelters for a week. They were called tabernacles or booths. And they did that for a very specific reason. What was that reason? To remember the time when their ancestors wandered in the desert and lived in these temporary shelters for 40 years. So on the first day of that feast, this psalm would be read in the presence of all of the Israelite people. Let me just read the whole thing to you. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord. Shout triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout triumphantly to him in song. For the Lord is a great God, a great king above all gods. The depths of the earth are in his hands and the mountain peaks are his. The sea is his. He made it. His hands formed the dry land. Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, where your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was disgusted with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. That psalm's entire intent is to remind the Israelite people of the greatness of who God is, and the tragedy of the unbelief of those who came out of Egypt after the Passover and failed to believe. And so it was read every year in remembrance of that when they celebrated this Feast of Booths. Look at how it begins. It begins in this unbelievable praise. Verse 1 down to the first three-fourths of verse 7. Come, let us shout joyfully to the Lord, triumphantly to the rock of our salvation. Let us enter his presence with thanksgiving. Shout triumphantly to him in song. He is a great God, the king of all gods, the one in whose hands are the depths of the earth and the peaks of the mountains, the one who formed the seas and the dry land. They were worshiping before their maker who was going to give them pasture as the sheep under his care. For the Israelites who wandered in the desert, that pasture was the promised land. That's where they were supposed to go after God triumphantly delivered them from slavery. And then it takes this sharp left turn at the end of verse 7. It goes from this amazing statement of praise to this warning. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness where your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years I was disgusted with that generation. I said, there are people whose hearts go astray. They do not know my ways. So I swore in my anger, they will not enter my rest. Unbelievable praise turns into this warning that's meant to be an encouragement. A warning to believe, to hear, to not go astray. Why that warning? Well, because that's what the Israelites did in the wilderness. Their hearts went astray. 
They didn't enter the rest of the promised land. Instead, they died in the wilderness. To use the words of Matthew Henry, rather than the pristine pastures of paradise, they got the sandy graves of the desert. Why? Why did the Israelites in the desert end up with that fate? The answer, and I cannot, I cannot stress this enough, the answer is incredibly simple. Unbelief. That's it. Unbelief. Flip back to Hebrews chapter 3. What does verse 19 say? It sums it up for us. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. If you were to jot down in your Bible, what is the central point of Hebrews chapter 3, verses 7 to 19? It would be unbelief kept the Israelites out of God's promised rest. That's the, that's the whole point. That's what the author of Hebrews, that's what the Holy Spirit wants us to see. There's one reason why that generation died in the desert, and that reason is unbelief. It displayed itself in grumbling, in testing, as is mentioned, in, uh, in sin, going astray. But it began in unbelief. Their hearts were hardened to the goodness and the grace of God by their unbelief in Him. That and that alone kept the initial generation of Israelites after the Passover out of the promised land. That's Psalm 95. Think about what Hebrews has done so far, chapters 1 and 2. Hebrews 1 and 2 are all about praising the excellency of who Jesus is. He's the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of God's character. He's greater than the angels. He's fully human and therefore merciful. He suffered in order to bring us this great salvation. He's greater than Moses. That is what Hebrews 1 and 2 have been doing. And then, like Psalm 95, the author of Hebrews shifts to a warning. In light of how great Jesus is, verses 1 through 6 told us to consider him. Just keep thinking about Jesus. And now verses 7 to 19 say, believe. Keep believing in him. That's the encouragement. If you hear the voice of the Lord today, believe. This is Hebrew Christian church. It's under intense persecution. And the author of Hebrews wants to say, just hold firm. Just keep on believing. It's not meant to be this warning that like slaps them upside the head or drops like some sort of heavy hammer on them. It's supposed to be, think about how great Jesus is. Just keep on believing in him. No matter what your circumstances are, no matter how bad the testing becomes, no matter what season of life you might be in, no matter how difficult the persecution is, keep on believing. This is the way I would summarize that in like pastor speak here. Hold firmly until the end the belief you professed at the beginning. That's the encouragement. The central point, the Israelites didn't enter their rest because of unbelief. The encouragement, hold firmly until the end the belief you professed at the beginning. That's a pastor's way of saying, don't stop believing. Hold on to that feeling. Don't stop. Don't give up. Hold fast. The Israelites didn't enter the rest of the promised land because they, they didn't believe. 
You want to enter God's eternal rest? Believe, but it comes in the form of these two if statements that are in chapter 3. The first one is in verse 6. We talked about that last, or we went through that passage last week. I didn't even mention the if last week. I, I blew right past it because I knew it would come back around in verse 14. So let me just read both of those. Christ was faithful as a son over his, that's God's, household. And we are that household if we hold on to our confidence in the hope in which we boast. Hebrews 3.14, for we have become participants in Christ if we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. This is a a major theme throughout Hebrews. In fact, chapter 6 is going to hit it in a very direct, very focused way. This theme, that if, raises the following question. Can I lose my salvation? Can I be saved and then lose hold of that somehow? Again, when we get to chapter 6, we're going to talk about it in depth and very specifically over a couple of weeks. But to avoid these two if statements in chapter 3 would do a disservice and be disingenuous to the passage that's in front of us. So we need to talk about it now. So we're going to give you what it is that this has to say there, and it will set the stage for when we get to chapter 6. And I recognize that this probably isn't going to be like what got you the most excited to come to church this morning, but in order to do this, we need to talk about verb tenses, and so I apologize. Uh, but if for like three minutes, you can hang with me here. I think the payoff is an incredible encouragement to followers of Jesus. There are two clauses in verse 14. There are two clauses in verse 6 as well, so you could apply this back to verse 6, but we're just going to do this in Hebrews 3.14. There's a conditional clause, and then there is a grounding clause. The conditional one comes first. For we have become participants in Christ if. We know it's conditional because apparently there are a couple of options. And then there's the clause that grounds the whole thing. That comes next. If we hold firmly until the end the reality that we had at the start. There is the grounding. How do I know the conditional thing? I know it because of the grounding thing. Now, in order to do this, whether you're looking at this passage in Greek or you're looking at it in English or you've got a Bible in Swahili in front of you, these verb tenses work the exact same way. For we have become. That's past tense, right? Something happened. We became. We have become something. In this case, participants in Christ. If, here's the second part, we hold firmly until the end. That's in the future. Okay, so what the passage is telling me is that I can know for certain about something that happened in the past based on what happens in the future. Make sense? If I hold firmly in the future, then... I can be certain that in the past, I became a participant with Christ. I was saved. What does that mean? That means that the evidence of something having happened in the past is what happens in an ongoing manner in the future. It means that your belief tomorrow is evidence of your belief today. So based on not just... Hebrews 3.14, or not just Hebrews 3.14 and Hebrews 3.6. I would say based on 
the whole of Scripture, it would be incorrect to say that if we don't hold firmly to the end, then even though we were once participants with Christ, now we are not. That, that is not correct based on what's right here. Instead, it's correct to say that if we do not hold firmly, then we were never participants. Go back to verse 14. How can I know if I have become a participant in Christ? Well, I can know that if I hold firmly to the end. How can I be sure about whether or not I'm saved today? Well, you can be sure because if you keep believing tomorrow, then obviously you're a participant in Christ. If you keep holding fast to your confidence and the hope that you once had in the future, then we can be absolutely certain that you're a part of the household of God and that that happened to you in the past. True belief truly persists. Enduring belief endures to the end. That's why Psalm 95 is what's quoted. Go back to the Israelites. The million plus that died in the wilderness. Why? Well, it was because they didn't believe. Their lack of belief in the future displays something for us about their lack of belief when they left Egypt. Sure, they were really excited about the benefits of God. They were once in slavery. Now they're free. Who wouldn't be incredibly exciting or excited about that? We were in bondage and slavery. He delivered us from that. Now we're free. We get out across the Red Sea and the waters close back in and the Egyptian army is destroyed and we've got this freedom. Yes, I'm probably going to sing as well. They were incredibly impressed by the power of God. Think about all that took place in order to deliver them in that way. Those amazing plagues. The work of the Lord in leading them in this plume of fire. The parting of the Red Sea and then the closing in of the Red Sea. The manna from heaven. All of that. They were impressed by that. Intellectually, they understood the work of the Lord. But there is a difference between being excited about God's benefits, impressed by God's power, and understanding the reality of God. There's a difference between those three things and actually believing on God. Those are different. That was true for the Israelites, and it's true for us today. None of those other things are substitutes for belief in the person of God and upon the person of God. None of those are substitutes for belief in the work of Jesus Christ and resting all of your hope upon the work of Jesus, of Jesus Christ. Let me give an, uh, just a short illustration. One of the hardest things uh, in this profession as I continue to like, settle into you know, being a, the lead pastor is that at times, and in a younger-ish congregation like we have, these are still kind of few and far between, but at times I get asked to do funerals. And I sit down with the family. And no matter how well I knew the individual that I'm performing the funeral for, I want to know more about who they were, and I want to hear a family just talk about them. And that way when I give a eulogy or whoever is going to do that, we can convey that person well and honor them. And so at some point in the conversation, if the question is needed, I ask, were they saved? Sometimes you don't need to ask the question. 
because it's just really apparent that we're celebrating the life of a faithful saint who is now resting in the presence of Jesus, and we can just bask in the reality of that despite the sadness of the grief. Other times, I ask that question, and the family says, well, at one time, they placed their faith in Christ, or they'll say they were baptized when they were 17 or when they were 9 or whatever the case might be. And then it's like there's this look we exchange because they don't know what to say beyond that. Maybe sometimes they're honest and they'll say, but for the last 10 years, 15 years, 40 years, they've been very distant from the Lord. They didn't, you know, sometimes they'll say they stopped going to church. That means more than just they stopped going to church. And then there's this look of like, please give a eulogy or please say something at this funeral that's going to make me feel good about the fact that this loved person, this loved one, is in heaven. And my heart just like breaks. I'm not the judge. Praise the Lord, I'm not the judge, that whatever I think in that moment is not what's ultimately going to have that person enter into heaven or be cast out of the presence of the Lord for all of eternity. I will surrender that task to Him gladly and joyfully in those moments. But if we just look at Hebrews 3.14, Hebrews 3.6, the rest of the New Testament, it would appear necessary that continued belief is the way in which we're certain of a person's salvation. Notice, continued belief. Belief. You could track your way through this passage and see that there's kind of this linear sort of progression where unbelief leads to a hardened heart which displays itself through sin. Now, it's not sin that keeps a person out of heaven. In terms of sinful behavior, the condition of sin keeps a person out of heaven, but ultimately it is belief that matters. It was belief that made it so that the Israelites did not enter the promised land. They didn't believe. The same is true for us today. It is belief that matters. So there's this warning, this sort of plea, this believe, hold on to your belief. But it comes actually as an encouragement. Remember, he's writing to a church. So something like this is not meant to make people in a church instantly start to question whether or not they're saved. No, what this is supposed to do is embolden you to the reality that you can be certain that you are. How does that work? Well, look at these questions in verses 16 through 19. Who heard and rebelled? Wasn't it all those who came out of Egypt under Moses? With whom was God angry for 40 years? Wasn't it with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? To whom did he swear that they would never enter his rest? Was it not to those who disobeyed? So, we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Two individuals entered the promised land. Right? The two spies. It was the grace of God that had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. It was the grace of God that had physically provided for them in the wilderness. It was the grace of God that had preserved their lives while the rest of their people passed away. It was the grace of God that brought them back to the edge of the promised land and the grace of God that eventually took them into the promised land. 
See a theme? The key is grace. It's the grace of God that saves us. He's done that work on our behalf through Jesus Christ. It's the grace of God that leads us to belief, and it will be the grace of God that sustains us and holds us in that belief. On the flip side, who was it that perished? All those who did not believe. They saw the grace of God, but their hearts were not stirred by it. Maybe they were excited about it, emotionally moved by it, but they were never moved to belief in the grace of God. It's not their actions that keep them out of the promised land. It's their belief. In fact, six times in this passage, verses 8, 9, 12, 13, 15, and 19, a statement is made about the heart. That's the obvious focus. This starts in the heart. Believe. Hold on to your belief. I think this raises three questions for us to ask ourselves today. I'll be quick with these. Number one, the first question we have got to ask ourselves is, do I believe? Do I believe in the person of Jesus Christ? It's one thing to be excited about the benefits of a relationship with Christ. It's one thing to be impressed by the power of God displayed through Jesus Christ. It's one thing to intellectually understand the facts about who Jesus was, that he lived, that he existed, that he did some teaching. It's entirely another thing to believe upon Jesus Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, as the only means by which we can be saved and be made right before God. That is the only thing that separates a person from eternal rest or not. Belief. So that's my question for every person in the room this morning. If I were to sit down at a table with you, and you said to me, I don't know that I've ever been saved. I wouldn't start asking about your behavior. I wouldn't start asking you to you know, confess your sins to me or something. I would ask if you believe. Do you believe in Jesus? the work of Christ on your behalf to save you from your sin. If you said no, I would encourage you to believe. If you said yes, I would say, well, then let's ask two more questions. Do your actions align with your profession? Do my actions align with my profession? That's the evidence of our belief. Again, you could track your way through this. Unbelief leads to a hardened heart, leads to sin. Okay, so if we're seeing a lot of sin, we need to work backwards and ask ourselves, what's going on here? At no point anywhere in Scripture is there ever a separation from, between the fruit of our lives and the authenticity of our faith. Scripture never separates those two things. Jesus himself quoted directly, you'll recognize them by their fruit. That's not a popular motif in our world today, but it is absolutely a concrete truth in Scripture. The fruit of our lives is evidence of our belief. Here's a practical thing you could do right now. You're seated here this morning, you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, I don't know, am I saved? I'm not sure, I'm just not certain. Read 1 John. 1 John is short. You can read it in probably 15 minutes. But over and over in 1 John, we're told this is how we can know that we're saved. In fact, John says himself, I've written these things so that you may know 
Do I believe? Do my actions align with my profession? Then number three, am I relying on the grace of God to hold me fast? If we believe that grace saved us, how dare we think that anything else will sustain us? As if we got saved by grace, but then I needed to you know, do certain things in order to make sure that I would actually end up in heaven. That's not true. If we believe that grace brought us into Christ, how dare we think that anything else will carry us home to Christ? The great encouragement of this passage for us as a church is you can know with rock-solid certainty whether or not you're saved. Do you believe? Do you believe? Ask yourself that question every single morning. That's why it's so important that we consider Jesus. So that in places where we might be tempted not to believe, our heart can be stirred back to the reality of the supremacy of Jesus Christ and the fact that He is better than all things. Do I believe? Think about it in a church sense. One day you placed your faith in Christ and received God's grace and you were saved by His grace and then you made a public profession of that through baptism. And when you got into the baptismal, whether that was here or somewhere else, someone stood there alongside you and said, do you believe that you're a sinner in need of a Savior? And you said, yes. And then they said, do you believe that Jesus Christ is the only sufficient Savior? And you said, yes. And they said, do you want to walk with Him all of your days? And you said, yes. Hang on to that belief every day. You wake up every single day. Yes, I believe I'm a sinner. Yes, I believe Jesus Christ is sufficient to save me. And yes, I'm going to follow Him. You can know with rock-solid certainty that you're saved. What's the point of Hebrews chapter 3? To make us really bold Christians. You know with certainty that you're saved? What could possibly touch you? What could harm you? That's the encouragement of this persecuted Hebrew church. You know for a fact that you're saved because you continue to believe? Then just press on, brothers and sisters, because nothing can touch you. What's the worst that could happen? You could lose your life. But as Paul says in the book of Philippians, that would be a gain. The point of Hebrews 3 is not to make us scared and timid that maybe we aren't actually participants in Christ. The point of Hebrews chapter 3 is to make us very certain and just really courageous in our faith because nothing can take it away from us. I believe. Do you? That's the question. And your belief tomorrow will be evidence of your belief today. We've been singing this song over the last few months. Um, We introduced it some time ago, but I already kind of had Hebrews in mind. The song is called, He Will Hold Me Fast. And the second verse says this, Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. You can be absolutely certain that the second half of every one of those statements is going to be true if you believe in the first half. Do you believe that those he saves are his delight? Do you believe that you're precious in his holy sight? Do you believe that he'll not let your soul be lost? Most importantly, do you believe that that was bought by him at such a cost? If so, then there's nothing to worry about, brothers and sisters. Christ will hold you fast. Don't stop believing. Right? Let's sing a better song than that, shall we? Stand up. <laughs>